If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 10, as we continue our study through the book of 1 Chronicles and through the entire Old Testament together, we come to chapter 10 here in the book of 1 Chronicles. And again, as we saw last time in our introductory look, we kind of journeyed quite rapidly through chapters 1 through 9, and the main reason being that the good bulk of those first few chapters were lists uh, of names, what we call genealogies, and made mention to you that the purpose of the chronicler, the, the human instrument, we believe potentially Ezra the scribe, who was the instrument God used to record the book of First Chronicles and Second Chronicles, really has a focus in why he's writing these things. He's really trying to encourage the uh, Jews post-exile as they're returning back to Jerusalem to reestablish themselves. And therefore, he wants to put their attention upon particular things, uh, ultimately focusing on the messianic line of Jesus Christ. Uh, and this is important, of course, because uh, ultimately, not just for them, but remember for all of us, uh, the entirety of the Bible is ultimately to put our attention upon Jesus. Uh, that's the whole purpose of this book that God has given to us. Certainly there are great truths and insights and principles and understandings, but if we miss the person behind the pages, we've missed the whole point of the Bible. Uh, Jesus brought that to attention to the religious leaders in his day when he said, you diligently search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And he said, yet you fail to see that they testify of me and you won't come to me that you may have eternal life. And so again, whether it be that place or in other places, uh, it says that Jesus in the book of Luke expanded all things in the prophets and the law concerning himself. So again, the purpose of the pages of this inspired book by God's spirit is ultimately to bring us to the person of Jesus. And particularly the writer of Chronicles, though he's repeating a lot of the same things we looked at in First and Second Samuel, as well as in First and Second Kings, he's typically not giving us an exhaustive look repetitiously of the same narratives, but what he's seeking to do is kind of give more abbreviated surveys of some of the events, but particularly focusing on the line of Judah, or the, excuse me, the southern kingdom of Judah, and particularly the line of Jesus. And so he always keeps quickly moving in that direction because that's the focus he wants to give to encourage the Jewish people of God's work amidst their failures that God was still doing things and again so that's kind of the premise of what the writer is trying to do and as we come to chapter 10 really chapters 10 through 12 give us a brief summary record of the exaltation and the enthronement of the rightful king that God wanted to rule in Israel and of course we know that was David so these chapters give a brief summary. Again, think of how exhaustive the description is in First and Second Samuel of what it takes to uh, work through the people's failure in choosing Saul and then Saul being removed and then David ultimately the process that it took to bring him to the place of being embraced as the king of Israel as he rightfully was. But here we just get in these three chapters kind of a summation of a few events that took place that describe, again, the dethroning of Saul and his fleshly rebellion and his fleshly ways that rebelled against God and the enthroning of David, who was the proper king that God wanted to be ruling. Now, in light of that, and as we look for application for ourselves, I think, therefore, this is a wonderful picture. 
Because as we look here at this brief summary of the dethroning uh, of someone who should not be ruling, which was Saul in his fleshly ways that rebelled against God, and the enthroning of the one who was the proper king and ruler who would seek to bring the people into God's ways, it's a picture really of what God does in all of our lives. Because ultimately there is this battle of the throne of our heart that goes on for all of us. And ultimately, God's intention is in each one of our lives truly to dethrone the fleshly self-life that is inside of every one of us, that we want to rule on the throne of our own heart. We want to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it, whatever feels good to us. And we want to be in charge in our natural fleshly human nature wants to be in charge we don't want ultimately honestly in our humanity god to be in charge because we want to have our way and do things our way and so our fleshly human nature causes us to want to rule within and be in control of our own life and yet god's purpose because he loves us is to dethrone that and to dethrone the self-life from ruling within because that only leads to destruction because we're very good at one thing as human beings and that's ruining our lives That's evident from the Garden of Eden, right? (laughs) If there's one thing we're good at, it's ultimately usually doing self-destructive things and going down patterns and paths that we shouldn't. And what God wants to do is dethrone us and the flesh and the self-life, and he wants to enthrone Jesus, the proper king, upon our heart and have Jesus ruling on the throne of our heart because he is the one who will lead us into the will of God and to do that which would honor God in all of our lives. So I think in some ways there's a beautiful spiritual picture an analogy uh, as we go through this keep that in mind as you look at the dethronement of Saul and the enthronement of David so chapter 10 is going to give us just a brief description of Saul's reign and ultimately his death and his dethronement now think of how many chapters in Samuel are given to us regarding King Saul the, the king that the people chose it wasn't the king that God chose they wanted a king like all the other nations so God ultimately gave them what, what they wanted, not what God wanted. He said, if that's what you want, I'll give you what you want. But understand, if you're going to get what you want, it comes with certain consequences. And God told them what that would be. And Saul was that and ultimately a whole lot more than that as he continued to rebel and shut God out of his life. So you have chapters and chapters describing these events in 1 Samuel. And as you come now to uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 10, you literally just get 14 verses about Saul. And all God wants to do in essence here is to show the failure of Saul and the removal of Saul, which leads us then to the replacement of God's rightful ruler, which is David. But God has to remove what is wrong before he can install what is right and put David upon the throne. And so really that's the the premise of this short chapter about Saul's history in a kind of abbreviated form here. So that's chapter 10, verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Remember, the Philistines were like perennial enemies. They were constantly attacking God's people, causing conflict for them. They were routine enemies. And here we're, we're told about this battle that would result ultimately in the death of King Saul. And at this point, we see the Philistines pursuing Israel, beginning to win out in the battle. They're now on the run. 
And verse 2 says, The Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan. That was that really the prince of Israel, remember, who should have been, if they would have followed just the dynasty rule, he would have been the next king of Israel. But Jonathan became a close fellowship and friend with David and realized, look, you're the one who should rightfully be on the throne. You remember that friendship between Jonathan and David? And in essence, Jonathan recognized, look, humanity, the flesh, what would be natural would be that I would assume and rule next. But honestly, I don't want to be on the throne. You should be on the throne. It would be better for you to be on the throne than me to be on the throne. And, and would to God that the spirit of the Lord would give us that nature like Jonathan had, that we would say of ourselves and our flesh of the nature, Lord, I know it may seem logical for me to be in charge and me to make the, the decisions and call the shots in my life and rule over my life. But Lord, I don't want to be in charge. I want you to be in charge. I'd much rather you rule. You're the rightful king and you should be on the throne in my life. And Jonathan had that great understanding as a friend of, of David. But here, all of Saul's sons this day in the same battle died as the result of some of the poor choices that Saul made. His destructive decisions ultimately led, unfortunately, to the destruction not only of his own life, but it led to the destruction of his family's life too. Because on that same day, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchishua, Saul's sons, all were killed that day as well. Verse 3 says, The battle became fierce against Saul. And here's how his death came. The archers hit him, and he was wounded by the archers. We're going to see this was a mortal wound. Somehow he was within proximity. An arrow is launched by an archer, and somehow it manages like a targeted missile uh, to, to go right between uh, the chinks of his armor and to pierce him. And we'll see it's a, a life-threatening terminal injury because verse 4 says, Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not. For he was greatly afraid. He was terrified to be accountable for killing the king. That wouldn't be a very wise thing to do. So therefore, Saul took a sword and fell on it. In other words, recognizing he was about to die, here we have Saul ultimately committing suicide, taking his own life. He recognizes that his wound is, is a mortal wound. He knows that he's bleeding out, that he's not going to survive likely this wound. And, and being nervous and apprehensive that the Philistines would come, the uncircumcised Philistines, and would take him and ultimately just torture him and abuse him and disgrace him as they would as a part of their practices. He doesn't want to be humiliated, disgraced, or subject to this torture or punishment so he turns to his armor bearer and he says please just put me out of my misery just swiftly kill me i'm not going to make it anyway i can tell my life is going to end and his armor bearer says you know hey hey boss i i am i can't do that i just i'm not killing the king just in case i don't want anybody you know putting that blood on my head so he refuses so ultimately saul somehow just takes his sword and falls forward apparently in some way upon it to just hasten his death, but ultimately in so doing becomes really uh, guilty of committing suicide, putting an end to his own life prematurely before God naturally would allow it to come to pass. He hastens the death process by taking matters into his own hands. But that was Saul's problem all the time, taking matters into his own hands, not letting God 
ultimately be in control. And here, sadly, we have one of a few descriptions that we do get in the Bible. The Bible is very honest, uh, doesn't, you know, clean things up. We see in the word of God occasions where individuals wrongly made the choice of ending their own lives, in a sense, what we might call self-murder. Because that's really what suicide is. It's very unfortunate. But in the same way, we're not to murder someone else. We also do not have the right as human beings to end our own lives and to murder ourselves. And that's really what the choice of suicide is. It's a wrong decision to take matters into our own hands. And rather than let death happen naturally by God's design and way, it's really choosing to die. It's not just dying, it's choosing to bring an end to your own life and to selfishly take that action and really kind of rob God of his own authority and divinity as our creator and the one who controls that last day of our life. So Saul here, notice, his suicide is really because what? Saul's suicide was because he refused to deal properly with his own failures. That's what led Saul to this place in his life that day where ultimately we have a record of suicide in the Bible and what contributed to Saul's suicide is he was a man who refused to deal properly with his own failures. He was ridden with guilt. He had a lot of remorse in his being because he knew in his conscience that he had done lots of things wrong. He knew he had made lots of poor choices and that he had contributed personally to a lot of his life problems. But rather than take ownership of his life problems and just humbly recognize in a repentive way and with a contrite broken heart, some of the reason why my life's a mess is because I've made wrong decisions. I've rebelled against God's ways. I've done things that I know God told me I wasn't supposed to do, but I blocked out the voice of God and I did what I wanted to do anyway for selfishness or my own gratification or because at times Saul wanted favor before the people. And Saul brought a lot of his own problems upon his own self. He created a lot of self-inflicted difficulties as he shut God out of his life and continued to choose his own ways and, and ultimately brought a lot of these difficulties and he wouldn't humbly surrender and always wanted to be in control instead. And rather than deal with those things in a humble way and a repentive way, instead it leads him to a place where here ultimately it's one of the main things that contributed to him taking his own life. And so sad because certainly I believe any who ultimately come to that place where they become so, you know, desperate to take their own life, unfortunately, they're succumbing to just the lying voice of the devil that's encouraging them to do that which is totally contrary to God's will and design, which is to end their own life. You know, the, the human survival instinct, folks, inside of us is incredibly strong. I mean, think of the way God's wired. If somebody attacks you, whether you're a man, woman, child, the human survival instinct is a strong, intense thing. If you're struggling to, to breathe or struggling to drown underwater or someone's attacking you, it is incredible, the survival instinct in a human being. So you have to do something very powerful to overcome that, which God hardwired into people to fight to survive, to end your own life. You have to go to a very dark place where the devil lies and deceives people ultimately where they become so weakened and incapacitated that they succumb to this. But I'll tell you, one of the contributors to those doing such a lot of times is people just filled with guilt. 
and they don't deal with their failures. They don't allow God to help them with their guilt and humble themselves. They don't receive the forgiveness of Jesus who can lift that guilt off of them and give them a brand new start and a brand new clean state. And instead, they just give up on life and they, they, they cop out. Uh, and here Saul is a, a sad testimony to this in one of the records of uh, a man committing suicide, even in the Bible here. So Saul does this in verse five. Notice this is what's even sad as well. Verse five says, and then when his armor bearers saw that Saul was dead, that he had took his own life, he also fell on his sword and died. So there, back to back, there's a second suicide his armor bearer now takes his own life. And unfortunately, like other things that can kind of be like, you know, the influence of one decision influences another. The same happens in this area. His armor bearer now seeing Saul take his own life, he now feels so scared and so hopeless because he feels, oh my goodness, if Saul just took his life, things must be really bad and really hopeless if the king of Israel would do that. So now feeling scared and feeling hopeless he seeks to escape struggle too. And again, that's another big contributor to those who struggle with suicidal tendencies and unfortunately some who will ultimately go that direction is one of the things that precipitates that is people just feel hopeless and they feel scared and they look at others and they see others copping out and the world just, and, and they think, oh my goodness, well, if that person gave up or this, this is happening or the battle's that fierce that, and, and so they just feel hopeless and they feel scared. And instead of coming to a place where they trust the Lord and let God give them hope and let them know that God's in control, despite what everybody else is doing, people fall prey to the lie of the devil who just says, yup, it is so hopeless and it is so terrifying you should just cop out. Just you, you can't endure life, just escape it. Just kill yourself. Just rid yourself of having to deal with the difficulties of the battle and what's going on. And so sadly here, a, a secondary suicide happens as his armor bearer takes his own life as well. Such a sad, sad thing. And we need to be praying and lovingly and compassionately speaking truth to people who are struggling genuinely with suicidal tendencies and thoughts because the devil wants to snuff out lives and rob, kill, and destroy. And we have to speak truth and love to give people the hope and the awareness that God is a God of hope and can get them out of those things instead. Verse 6 says, So Saul and his three sons died that day. All his house died together. Boy, that's a sad testimony when a whole house dies together unnecessarily. Verse 7, And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that they had fled, and Saul and his sons were dead. They then forsook their cities and fled. The Philistines came and dwelt in them. And so what happened, verse 8, the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, the idea is they come through now and they're going to just try and take all the loot and everything they can, weapons and wallets and so on, you know, just take everything we can off of all the dead corpses and rob them of all the benefits that we can take. When they came through the, the area to do that, to strip those who were slain and dead, they found Saul and his sons fallen there on Mount Gilboa. And they stripped him and took his head, the idea is they decapitated him, took his head off, and his armor and sent word throughout all the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among the people. And they put his armor in the temple of their gods. 
and they fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. So to them, this was a, a great indication of victory. I mean, you have slaughtered the king of Israel. You've killed his sons, all the future princes of Israel. And so his enemies, they feel like, hey, this is something to celebrate and parade. And their mindset was our God, therefore, is stronger than your God. So that's why they cut off his head. They potentially probably put it like on a, a stick or a post out in front of their temple there to Dagon and they put the armor there the idea is is we've conquered you we've overcome and they're now celebrating this the the enemy is rejoicing over the failure of what's happened among God's people and I think that's always what the enemy wants to do to celebrate and gloat and rejoice whenever he can destroy uh, any uh, thing among God's people that's always what the enemy wants to do verse 11 it says when all Jabesh Gilead however heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul all the valiant men, that is those of noble character, they arose and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons, brought them to Jabesh and buried their bones under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted for seven days. So interesting what happens here. They take Saul's body that's been disgraced and his sons, and it says the men of Jabesh Gilead, now from First Samuel chapter 11, these men of Jabesh Gilead had a, had a, degree of affinity towards Saul because Saul in his earlier days before he went completely kind of uh, you know off the rails mentally morally spiritually in every way in rebellion against God he at one point come and rescued the men of Jabesh Gilead when they were trying to be conquered and Saul rose up and the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he stepped in and intervened and he helped those people out and they never forgot that and though Saul certainly by far had many flaws and had done lots of wrong things, uh, here these men still had this sense of, you know what, they are disgracing one of our own. And so they go over to the camp of the Philistines and they take the bodies back of Saul and his men and, and they give them a dignified burial out of gratitude for what Saul did for them many years ago. Verse 13 says, so Saul died. For notice these verses, Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also be also he consulted a medium for guidance. But he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he, that's referring to the Lord, God, killed him and turned the kingdom over to David the son of Jesse. So take notice here, as the summation of the chapter comes to a close here, which is ultimately what the chronicler wants to get us to, is that Saul has now died and is being replaced by David, the rightful king, as the Lord turns the king over or the kingdom over to David who should be ruling as God's chosen leader over the people. But we do read here verse 13, God's testimony, the Holy Spirit's record, the reason that Saul died is because the wages of sin is death. Tells us that in Romans chapter 6. That is what we get paid. You work at your job, right? You get wages. Your wages are what you're paid or compensated for what you do, for your actions and performance. Well, the Bible says the wage is what we earn for ourselves when we sin against God and rebel against God is death. That is destruction. We destroy what's good in our life and ultimately we can destroy literally our own lives. And ultimately, we can destroy our eternal life and destiny if we don't come to Jesus and have that sin forgiven by him. And so here we read that Saul died, verse 13, for 
his unfaithfulness which he committed against the Lord because he was disloyal to the Lord he turned away from the Lord personally he turned away from the Lord in regards to every act of obedience and notice what did his unfaithfulness to the Lord uh, look like it says he committed unfaithfulness against the Lord in that verse 13 he did not keep the word of the Lord that's how God quantified his unfaithfulness to the Lord his disloyalty to the Lord is quantified from the Holy Spirit's perspective in that he didn't keep or obey the word of God now that's crucial to understand because a lot of times some people will try and say listen I'm, I mean yeah I follow the Lord and I, I love the Lord I mean I mean yeah I'm living with my boyfriend or girlfriend and we're sleeping together and but God understands now what God understands is that you're deceived because you can't say that you're being faithful to the Lord if you're being unfaithful in disobeying the clear written word of the Lord. Because God's word is God's standard and God's will. So God says, if you are disregarding and violating clear written things in scripture of what the word of the Lord and the word of God is, th then God says, if you're doing that, you're not being faithful to me. You, we can't be faithful to God and be unfaithful to God's word because the, the two go together. And so here, it was Saul, remember, that did this very thing. The Lord clearly would give Saul his word again and again, but Saul's flesh would direct him towards self-destructive ways. He would be unfaithful to the Lord. He would disregard his commitment and devotion to the Lord to do what he wanted to do and said. But he was always disobeying God's word in stubbornness and rebellion. He would disrespect the Lord's authority and disobey what God told him to do and do what was desired instead of what God said and ultimately sought some pretty dark and twisted ways. It says there he also consulted a medium for guidance. Remember, that was the witch of Endor that we read back in Samuel that he actually went to an actual witch and was seeking guidance from a witch rather than actually asking God to lead him through prayer and asking God to direct his life in a clear way. But again, what's Saul a picture of? He's a picture of the flesh. And that's what our flesh, our human nature, our sinful nature will always do. Our human nature, our flesh wants to direct us towards self-destructive ways. It will always lead me and guide you to disregard our commitment and devotion to the Lord. Your flesh is always going to prompt you to disrespect God's authority and disobey God's word. Your flesh, your sin nature is going to encourage you to do what's desired instead of what God's word declares and clearly says. And so we have to realize our flesh can take us down some pretty dark paths. Ultimately, here Saul in his flesh starts seeking guidance from witches and mediums, channeling dead spirits, some pretty dark and twisted things. And the Lord, notice, ultimately, if we don't humble ourselves and repent at times, uh, if necessary, will clearly judge our human rebellion and our sin. God is merciful, God is patient, but ultimately it says because he did these things and would not inquire of the Lord, verse 14, notice it says, therefore he, that is the Lord, God, killed him. So you know, wait, wait a minute, I, I thought it just said back in the beginning of chapter 10 that it was the arrow of an archer from a Philistine that really became the life-threatening thing that killed Saul. Of course, he ended his life early, hastening the process, but it would have been that arrow of a Philistine. I thought the Philistines killed him. 
They did. But ultimately, God was the one that directed that arrow that that Philistine shot that brought the end to Saul's life because God's sovereign and God controls events and circumstances. And ultimately, the Holy Spirit tells us the Lord begins life and God ends life. And God determined it. And ultimately, it was the result of the fact that Saul had become so dark and so twisted and gone so far that ultimately the Lord ended his life to remove him from his role of leadership. So ultimately, it says, verse 14, so that he could then completely turn the kingdom, the rulership of the throne over to David, the son of Jesse. And, you know, an important reminder for us, if need be, the Lord will. The Lord will remove and the Lord will replace people if and as needed at times throughout history. That if somebody goes to a place like where Saul was, where he became so dark, so stubborn, so rebellious and would not repent or change or humble himself, ultimately the Lord determined an hour when ultimately he said, you know what, it's time to remove you. It's time to replace you. And God had no problem at his set moment removing him from his position of leadership and turning the kingdom and rulership over to David ultimately who was supposed to be on the throne anyway. And again, as I said before, all of this is a beautiful picture because I tell you, if there's one thing that God wants to put to death in me, it's my flesh. <laughs> God wants to put to death my sinful nature so that he can turn the rulership of my heart over to the right king which is Jesus. And for those of us who know the Lord, the Bible tells us Christ dwells within us. Again, Christ indwells us. His spirit dwells within us, but Christ is indwelling. But the challenge is, is Christ enthroned. He's indwelling. If you're a Christian, he lives inside of you. The spirit of the Lord comes inside of us when we accept Jesus. But the struggle then is, is are we going to let Jesus be enthroned and rule on our heart? Or are we going to keep trying to, in our fleshly ways, be in control? And, and look, God's more than happy to do whatever it takes to win the battle. And, and it's to our benefit that God puts us to death, the self-life to death, and that ultimately turns over that rulership more and more inside of us to Jesus, the one greater than David, the son of David, who should rule inside of us. Chapter 11 says, Then all Israel came together after this to David at Hebron, saying, indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. So the family members now, the tribe of Israel, start coming to David, recognizing that Saul is dead. And they said to him, also in time past, even when Saul was king, they said, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord your God said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over my people Israel. So here the writer's referring to how after the death of Saul, God's people come to David. They recognize that he's the rightful king, the one who God anointed and has chosen to be king. And at this point, they come to David and say, look, even when Saul was reigning and he was still in control, David, you were always the one anyway, fighting the Lord's battles. And you were the one who was leading Israel. All he was doing was ruling Israel. But David, you were leading Israel. And, and this is such a, a fitting picture of the difference and distinction between Saul's rulership and ultimately David's leadership and rulership. Saul enjoyed the position and the status of being in charge. That's what Saul enjoyed. Saul liked being the guy in charge. He liked bossing people around, telling people what to do and feeling like he was the top dog. That's what Saul liked because it fed his ego and it fed his flesh. 
Saul didn't really want to lead the people or help the people. He just wanted to be in charge. He liked the position. He liked the status. David, on the other hand, who the Lord selected as a shepherd king of the people, David, on the contrary, wanted to actually serve people. He wanted to actually help people. And he said, they say to David, recognizing David, even when he was the guy in charge, you were the one always helping us. You were the one that led us in and out in battles and, and were standing together with us. You were the one that had the servant's heart. And they said, ultimately, God's the one who called you. The divine calling is on you. They said, the Lord has said to you, David, that you shall shepherd, notice, shepherd my people, Israel, and be a ruler over them. Therefore, all the elders, verse 3 of Israel, came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. So here we have now the coronation being described of David to be the king of Israel. And they remind David how ultimately it was Samuel who had anointed him to be king over Israel by the word of the Lord that came through Samuel the prophet. Now keep in mind, that was 20 years ago, approximately. So the anointing and the calling of David came as he was a young shepherd boy and then God took him through a process which first and second Samuel, these books described to us, took David through a process that though he was the called king and he had the call of God upon his life and the anointing of God was upon his life, but yet then the Lord took him through this process to cultivate character and to develop him and then give him a heart of a shepherd and a servant and to humble him and to break him and to do all the good things that ultimately prepared David for this day when he actually stepped into the function that God genuinely did call him for, that he was adequately prepared with the right heart to be a shepherd king, to not be like Saul. God had to kind of root out of his system. In some ways, I think all of the Saul mannerisms that probably would have been potentially been there in David too. And God took him through this lengthy process of preparation. And there was a gap of time considerably between the calling and David actually entering into the office and serving in that function. But here they're reminding him of that call that God gave to him through Samuel many years ago. And now they're coronating him. He's making a covenant with the people there before the Lord as they are embracing him as their rightful king. And David, verse 4, and all Israel went to Jerusalem then, which is Jebus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. But the inhabitants of Jebus said to David, you shall not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said, whoever attacks the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. And Joab, the son of Zariah, went up first and became chief. And then David dwelt in the stronghold. Therefore, they called it the city of David. Then he built the city around it from the millow to the surrounding area and Joab repaired the rest of the city. So here what's being described is David moving his capital city to the area of what we now know as Jerusalem. Uh, again, remember when David came to the throne, that was even a process. Remember the first seven years we saw back in our studies in Samuel together. First seven years, he had a partial rulership in Hebron over Judah and Benjamin. And then the remaining 33 or so years, he ruled over the entire nation of Israel. But it was kind of a gradual process of the people embracing him. Well, at this point, David, who was reigning in Hebron, decides to move his capital from Hebron in the south 
to a more central location there in Jerusalem, which also wasn't too far from Bethlehem, his hometown. Maybe that had a little connection to that as well. So David here is moving his capital now, and Jerusalem, again, David, a, a wise master, uh, you know, military general, very strategic, looked at Jerusalem, that city of Jebus, ultimately called Jerusalem, and said, wow, that place is strategic. It's got three valleys surrounding it, which really is a great place to be able to defend the capital city because your enemies can really only come from one side because there's valleys on three other sides of it. And so David now moving the, the capital city to Jerusalem, it would be much more central, goes to this area where it was inhabited by the people of Jebus at that time, who Jebus, uh, the people there said, you're not going to come in here. But again, David realized they were just trying to discourage his efforts in the things of God. So he turns verse six to the men who are around him and says, look, whoever's willing to attack the Jebusites first I'm going to give you the opportunity to be my chief and my captain, to be a, a general uh, in my army, to be someone who's a captain and has some role of authority in that role. And Joab embraces the king's opportunity here in this offer and ultimately does this. It describes in the uh, books of Samuel how he uh, went up this shaft and attacked the city, climbed up through this very difficult way with great uh, vigor and, and really embraced the opportunity and brought great success to conquer the people. But again, what a beautiful picture. Here's the king, and what's he doing? He's offering opportunity. And he says, whoever's interested in the opportunity, there'll be reward for you. And no one had to do it. It was just an opportunity that was afforded to them by the king. And I look at this and I think, boy, that's a good picture of really what our king, the one greater than David, Jesus, the son of David does, is at times Jesus has something on his heart that he wants to do. And he says, hey, whoever's interested in the opportunity, here's an offer, here's an opportunity. And if you do this, there'll be reward. There'll be benefit from the king. And he doesn't force us to do his service. He gives us opportunity to engage in what's on his heart. And like Joab here, we can embrace the opportunity and experience the reward of our king as well. So verse 9 says, David then went on and became great and the Lord of hosts was with him. So you see that verse 9 there? I have that circled in my Bible because there in some ways you might say was the key to David's greatness. Man, what was the key to this man? The, I mean, the greatness of David. Well, it says he went on and became great. The reason, not because he was a great guy. It says because the Lord of hosts was with him. <laughs> it was because of the presence of the Lord in David's life that he became the great man that he did in so many ways. It was that David maintained close relationship with the Lord. It, it was very simply that he cultivated close fellowship with the Lord. He walked with the Lord, and as the result of that, the hand of the Lord, the presence of the Lord brought him into a place where as he went on, he became greater and greater. And the same is available in many ways to you and I just as much as well. Verse 10 then tells us, now these were the heads of the mighty men who David had, who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom with all Israel to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. And this is the number of the mighty men whom David had. Jashobim, the son of the Hakmonite, chief of the captains, and he had lifted up his spear against 300 and killed by him at one time. So now we're going to begin to get a record of these 
you know, 30 plus or so men who were valiant warriors who became known as David's mighty men. Uh, these who kind of became like almost, you might say, like his, uh, you know, commando unit. These guys were his green berets. I mean, just these men who had great skill in warfare. They were courageous. They became known as David's mighty men. And we get a listing of some of them here who supported him in his rulership as a part of his army. The first one we're told about here is this man, Jashabim. And notice this guy, it says, with a spear defeated 300 men at one time. Now that's impressive. That's, I mean, if you really genuinely think about that, I mean, you think of what happens when you know, you know, two men you know, uh, engage in a boxing match or, or a fight, or, and then you know, take one man and then throw into their three other men against one man, and then throw in their 30 more men, and then throw in their 300 men against one man, and all he's got is a spear, and they have weapons. This guy with a spear <laughs> killed 300 men in one, at one time in one battle. I mean, this guy was a warrior on steroids. And, again, and, and look, folks, this is what I love about this. This guy was dripping, I use that term, dripping masculinity. But he was a godly man. And he was a warrior. He killed 300 people one time with a spear, but he was a part of David's mighty men who they all love the Lord. And again, so sad that we have this concept that somehow that, that in order for men to, you know, to be godly and that they have to be weak and effeminate, the Bible knows nothing of that. The Bible knows that there's a distinction between male and female and that males are to be you know, utterly male and females are to be utterly female the way God created them to be. And here, this is just a beautiful description. These men, these like David, they were, they were warriors who had great conquest. Look at verse 12. It says, after him was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, and that'll make you a tough kid if you're going to probably get teased for your dad's name being that who was one of the three mighty men, and he was with David at Pasadamim. Now there were Philistines gathered for battle, and there was a piece of ground full of barley, so the people fled from the Philistines. But they stationed themselves in the middle of that field and defended it. And they killed the Philistines, so the Lord brought about a great victory. So again, this man's record of his life is a time where people were in retreat the Philistines were coming forward and there was a, a field it sells, a, a piece of ground that was full of barley. Now, barley was like the most insignificant crop in the land. Wheat was important, but barley was something they would use to feed the animals. So this was the implication the Spirit of God's giving to us here. Is this is a very insignificant piece of ground. It's a barley field. Most people in that day would not be over-concerned about a barley field. But it wasn't the value of the field. It was the principle that it was the Lord's territory. And so that's why this man said, look, I don't care if it's a field of beans or if it's a barley field or what it is. It's the Lord's territory. And we're not giving up the Lord's territory. And so they, they dug in their heels. And this man, it says, stood there and they defended that field. And the Lord brought about a great victory. The Lord gave them success. The Lord honored what they did because it was the principle's sake. And you know what? You know, God help us to have more of that kind of heart as we serve our king, the rightful king Jesus, that we wouldn't equate what we're going to really give ourselves fully to depending upon how 
we or others might view how important something is or how significant something is. Look, anything that belongs to the Lord is significant. Folding a bulletin, significant, because that's the Lord's bulletin. Do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> that we would, you know, not look at any life, any person, any... Well, I mean, I mean, something's worth engaging in battle and really defending and holding our ground for, and, 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 but I'm not going to, like, get into a... I mean, like, defend... This is just something so insignificant. And the Lord says, no. If, if it's my ground, it's important. So whether it's defending your family or your marriage or whatever it may be, that you would realize that the Lord honors that, that when we take a stand, the Lord honors that. It says here, the Lord gave him great victory and the Lord wants to give us great victory when we stand and defend those things that matter to him and that are precious in his sight and valuable from his perspective. Verse 15 says, now three of the chief men went down to the rock to David into the cave of Adullam, which was kind of a hideout where David would remain. And the army of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. And David was there in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. So they had a fortified area, a fort, where they had conquered an area of Bethlehem, David's hometown. And David said with longing, he just kind of makes a sighing expression in the cave one day as they're sitting there saying, oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from that well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, David would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. The idea is as an offering unto the Lord. And he said, far be it for me, O my God, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of these men who've put their lives in jeopardy? For at the risk of their lives, they brought it. Therefore, he would not drink it. And these things were done by the three mighty men. So here we get in verse 15, another description, kind of going back a little bit now historically, the time when David was dwelling in the cave of Adullam. And as he's there, the Philistines have conquered and set up camp and a stronghold in David's hometown of Bethlehem. So the enemy controls that territory of Bethlehem. And as David's there, remember, not too far off, Bethlehem was David's hometown. So there was this well that probably David many times as a boy growing up and as a young man, when he was hot and thirsty, he would drink the water from this well when it was so refreshing. And he's like, oh man, I remember that water, you know, from, from my home city. Oh man, and he's just in the cave one day and he just kind of utters in a, a thirsty moment, a sighing breath, not dictating or commanding that his men must do it. Just, man, what I wouldn't do on this hot, arid Difficult day out here to have a drink. Oh, man, I remember that well and be- it had the best water. Oh man, it would just quench your thirst. And, he, and he's just kind of expressing this desire from his heart and three men who are near him who are so devoted to David as their leader. They hear David say that and without David asking, demanding, commanding, or requesting, they say, we're getting the boss a drink. And they go and risk their lives, break into the camp. There are the Philistines in Bethlehem, get a cup of water from that well and bring it back to David. And David is so amazed and astonished that these men would be so loyal and so devoted to do such a thing. Keep in mind that he didn't ask them to do. He didn't even command them to do, though he could have. But they just did it because they overheard his desire And they loved him so much 
And they were so devoted to him as their leader and their ruler that they were willing to do the thing that they knew was a desire upon his heart because they wanted to bless him and please him. And so David's so amazed, I can't even drink this. And he, he says, only the Lord would be worthy of something like this. And he just pours it out as an offering to the Lord. He says, I can't believe what these men did. I have to wonder if the men were like, what? <laughs> says, trust me, trust me. This is a spiritual example here. We should only give God. But as we look at this, again, can I say what a beautiful description of really what we have opportunity to do as well. Because a lot of times our king, Jesus... He doesn't always demand us to do things. Sometimes he gives us a clear command. Sometimes he asks us to do something. But you know, may we, like these men, be so close to our leader, to our Lord, to our king, that we're able to know and to hear his desires on his heart. May these men were close enough to David, if they were somewhere else in the camp, you know, playing Uno or Pinochle or doing, I mean, that they didn't hear what he, they would have missed it, right? But they were close to their king. They were close to David. They were near David. And so they overheard him just utter this, oh man, how I would love to see this. How I would love to, and they heard his desire and they took it upon themselves to fulfill his desire. And you know what? Would to God that we would be so close to our king, or so close to Jesus, that we'd hear the desires on his heart, that we'd understand what matters to him, what he's interested in, and that we could say, you know what? Hey, if that matters to our king, whatever it takes, let's go do it. And, and to be able to go out and to fulfill his desires and, and to bless his heart like David, where he would go, wow. They, they heard what was on my heart. They knew what mattered to me and they, they, they went out and they did and they engaged and, and took it uh, and brought it to pass in their lives. Well, chapter uh, 11, verse 20 tells us that Abishai, the brother of Joab, was chief of another three. He lifted up his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name among these. And of the three, he was more honored than the other two, and therefore he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three, to the top three among David's mighty men, the idea is. Verse 21, of the three, uh, or excuse me, verse 22, Benaniah, this guy is quite a character, was the son of Jehoiada, the son of valiant men from Kabzeel, who had done many deeds, and he had killed two lion-like heroes, I don't know what they were like, of Moab. He also went down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. Now, look, I don't want to fight a lion, and I certainly don't want to fight a lion in a pit where I'm closed in, and I certainly don't want to fight a lion in a pit on a snowy day when it's miserable and you can slip and fall and be more... But this man was just... He was that fierce. <laughs> I mean, he just... Well, I don't even know why he went down in a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. You know, maybe David dropped his keys down there and... Nope. Hey... I'll take it for you. And he just, but I mean, again, the fierceness of these men, verse 23 says he also killed an Egyptian, a man of great height, five cubits tall. Now that's seven and a half foot. So that's a pretty big guy he took out. In the Egyptian's hand, the seven and a half foot Egyptian, there was a spear like a weaver's beam. And he went down to him with a staff and he wrested the spear out of that Egyptian's hand and killed him. With his own spear, these things Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, did and won a name 
among three mighty men. And indeed, he was more honored than the 30, but did not attain to the first three. And David therefore appointed him over his guard. So ben I, I mean, this guy was uh, just uh, you know a very gifted warrior, a courageous man. I mean, the, the battles, the things he would step into, probably that others would just completely back away. I'm not getting involved in that. This guy just would step forward with incredible courage. He'd take on giant-like figures. Now, interesting. Where do you get that kind of courage? Well, maybe because he spent time with someone who was a giant killer himself. That was David, remember? When nobody else wanted to fight Goliath, David, as a young boy, said, look, the battle's the Lord's. I don't care how big that guy is. He's not anything compared to God and his power and his strength. And the battle's not mine. The battle's the Lord's. And because he spent time with a giant killer... And someone who would do such things, he developed the nature and the character to ultimately enter into the same kind of things. And again, you know what? Just like these mighty men became like David because they spent time with David, as we spend time with Jesus, we become more like Jesus. And we engage in the things that Jesus would engage in, and we do the things that Jesus would do more and more. Now, the remainder of the chapter just gives a list, again, another genealogy description of the other 30-plus uh, mighty men, and I will not torture you by trying to pronounce their names. It is interesting, verse 41 tells us Uriah the Hittite was one of David's mighty men. So keep in mind, that means that sin of Bathsheba that David entered into with the wife, remember she was, of Uriah the Hittite. So what does that show you? Here's somebody that was a loyal friend and comrade and soldier of David, and that's who David selfishly did that to, to someone who's a close associate of his. So again, David was a man great, but he had feet of clay and made his own share of mistakes. You know, these chapters, you might read, why does the Bible take the time to record for us you know, people fighting lions and Egyptians and telling us one guy killed 300 men. I mean, what's the purpose of that? Well, if nothing else, take the purpose to be this. What it indicates to us is the Lord is aware of every battle that you engage in. Every battle that you face, whether it's against one or 300 or against a lion in a pit on a snowy day, the Lord knows what battles you're fighting. He knows the difficulties you're going through and he's with you in the battle. And he wants to give you success. He wants to give you victory as you depend upon him. Shall we stand together and let's